Went to a ball game the other day Skinny guys in baggy pants, hooray Pitchers duel, it was one to one Seen a bunt and a steal and a hit and run I miss the steroid era I miss the good old days Sammy Sosa hitting 60 a year Old guys hitting bombs at the end of their career I miss the steroid era I miss the good old days Hello and welcome to episode 1551 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer and I will be joined in just a moment by Sam Miller of ESPN as well as AJ Schnock, the director of ESPN's 30 for 30 documentary Long Gone Summer, which we will be spending this entire episode discussing. So on Sunday night, ESPN aired Long Gone Summer. It's the story of the 1998 home run race, both what it was like in the moment and what we think of it now. So Sam and I are going to interview AJ, the director. And then after that interview, Sam and I will have a discussion about our memories of that season and what we thought of the documentary and how we remember that whole era. Just a quick disclaimer, I do appear in this documentary. I was interviewed for it and there are a few short snippets of me expounding on something or other. I wasn't otherwise involved in the production and I wasn't paid to appear, but just thought I should state that up top. So let's get started with our interview segment. So we are joined now by the director of Long Gone Summer, A.J. Schnock. Hey, A.J., congrats on the release, and thanks for coming on. Uh, Thank you, guys. So I assume that proceeding with a documentary like this was contingent on the participation of McGuire and Sosa. So were they at all reluctant to take part, and did you have any hope that they'd be more reflective or forthcoming about their PD use? I mean, first of all, yeah, that was definitely a thing that we talked about with ESPN was, you know, how do you get these two guys who, you know, McGuire has never liked doing anything of a, like a long form interview, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Sosa hasn't been doing much press of, of late in recent years. So how do you get both of them to, you know, not just sit down, but sit down for the length of time that, you know, we wanted them to do it. So that was definitely part of the initial conversations and the work that, you know, we did for more than a year, actually, just to kind of get them both on board. Mm. In terms of, you know, dealing with steroids and their PED use or alleged PED use, you know, with McGuire, I, I always felt that he, you know, he had said pretty clearly, you know, in his Costas interview and in other interviews that he did before rejoining the Cardinals as a coach, you know, what he had done, when he had done it, and how he felt it had or hadn't affected his performance. I wasn't sure what Sammy was going to say when I asked him. I know he's, he feels very proud of his accomplishments and feels insulted that people view it within this frame. So, you know, I did think he said something that I had not heard him say before, but I didn't, I didn't expect him to, to change his story, which is that he, you know, didn't, what he said to Congress, which is that he didn't use. Were there any questions that they just didn't answer? You asked a question and they just didn't want to go there? No, uh, I, you know, I told them kind of going in that, you know, we were going to talk about everything. We were going to talk about the season, talk about their previous history in the game. And, you know, that, that was one of the things in talking to Mark that he, you know, pretty much 20 minutes into the first interview was talking about the fact that he had been in therapy, that he had kept these lists 
of uh, things he expected uh, from himself to accomplish and then puts them in a safe and doesn't look at it again until the end of the season. And these were things that I, I was pretty sure were not <laughs> common information. So hearing him talk like that, you know, especially knowing his reluctance to do, you know, big interviews, I felt really good that he was, you know, coming into this process with, you know, the decision that he was going to be uh, as open as possible. Did you talk to Tony Larusa about that aspect of the story at all? Just because he was with McGuire in Oakland during the Bash Brothers years, he was with them again in St. Louis, and of course he's in the Hall of Fame. And some people will say, well, if you're going to keep some of these players out because of their PD use or suspected PD use, then how do you not hold the manager who was there the whole time accountable? So I wonder if that came up at all, or whether you just sort of stuck to the performance with him. No, I asked him uh, about it. I asked him also about Andrew because he had sort of famously uh, criticized the AP reporter who had written the story. You know, I thought his his answer about uh, the steroids question was basically that Mark is a a, a good guy and has uh, you know proven in other ways that he has good character and that that overcomes the mistakes that he might have made. There were moments when that was in the film, but you know, in the end, it's. I, I thought it was more compelling to uh, let other people dissect, you know, how the, the, the season is viewed now. I mean, part of, you know, with any kind of story, it's ultimately it, it becomes a story that everybody has ownership of because it was how it affected them at the time and how it affects them now. So we wanted to go with the approach of letting variety of voices, you know, to kind of break down not just what was happening at the time, but how they feel about, you know, whether whether or not it completely invalidates either their experience of that season or, you know, the actual achievements of that season. It's, it's so interesting to talk about, you know, that era these days, because like in some ways, players who were implicated, a lot of them not only are forgiven, but, you know, became beloved figures in the sport. Bartolo Colon was suspended and became one of the most beloved figures in the sport. And Jason Giambi was, and and dozens and dozens of players have been implicated and, and it's just more or less forgotten about. And I don't, I, there are other players for whom it, it still is a big part of their legacy and that you get the sense that they're still not that comfortable with it. I thought the, the most fascinating part of the documentary was when you get to Andro and Mark McGuire is still sort of like complaining bitterly about the way that the Andro was was reported on at the time because as as he still is saying like oh it was it was legal there was there was no rule against Andro at the time and you're like yeah but also you were doing you were doing <laughs> steroids like it's right. it's a strange way that like we're still not sure whether to cast players from that era as uh, victims of a witch hunt or perpetrators of a fraud and I I don't think the broad public has has necessarily agreed on which one it is and in particular even with like with specific players we treat it differently and i felt coming out of the documentary that one of the things that you really come away with is that sammy sosa and mark mcguire still aren't really that comfortable being like open about it like they still aren't quite sure how it's going to be treated do you think that that's just because of their role in history, if they had each ended up with 58 home runs, do you think that they would have a different perspective on that era? 
Yeah, I think for sure. There's, I think they've certainly been held to a different level of responsibility or blame for what occurred during that era. You know, I think because, you know, because it, it reached such heights, it can also reach, you know, such depths on, on the other end of it. You know, one of the things I hoped that we were, you know, able to do was to, you know, you, you talked about the, the Andro and, and, and just to, to frame the era a little bit differently for people who don't remember uh, the fact that it was such a sea change to go into the 90s from the teams we had seen in the 80s in terms of people embracing this kind of bodybuilder gym culture of bulking up and adding on muscle mass and, you know, doing all these supplements wide open. You know, creatine was, a you know, one of the more prominent ones. But, you know, the fact that a lot of this was, was right there in, in front of us, you know, I think it was something that, you know, people maybe felt either that they should have seen it coming or that they should have known that it was going on. I think there were a variety of reasons why people felt after the fact, like, why didn't I know I was being uh, tricked or misled? And and maybe that's why, you know, people had have still lingering either anger or confliction about how they feel about these two guys, as opposed to, you know, we know that lots of players were doing it. Pitchers were doing it. Hitters were doing it. There were no set rules uh, that were, you know, subject to penalty or subject to testing. Yeah, it definitely, uh, you know, the, the ones who, who did the most are the ones who are feeling the most blowback, for sure. Yeah, and I wonder whether you thought about talking to or tried to talk to Ken Griffey Jr. or Barry Bonds Griffey because he was part of the early stretch of this race and because he hit 56 in back-to-back years. And if you believe that Griffey was clean and that McGuire and Sosa were not and that they hit as many homers as they did because they were not, then you could think that maybe Griffey would have reason to be bitter about this. And, of course, with Bonds, the story goes that he was overshadowed during that home run race and that that's part of what prompted him to start taking PEDs. So I wonder whether that was a consideration. Yeah, I never thought about Bonds because I really wanted to focus on that season and again, reminding people how big the season felt at the time and how it, you know, captivated the country in a way that sports hadn't in a while and, and maybe hasn't since. So that was, that was kind of the focus in terms of the interviews that we sought out. We did try to get Griffey and, and, you know, weren't successful. You know, now, though, I look at the two hours of real estate that we had and, you know, even just telling the story of these two guys and their backgrounds, you know, it, it would have it would have been a real challenge to fit in and do to do justice to Griffey's storyline, because, you know, you'd want to talk about how the race was seen in Seattle and, you know, how he felt both then and after after the fact, you know, I, I certainly you know, one question I'd love to ask Griffey is, you know, now that we see the ball, you know, wound a little bit tighter and people hitting the home runs that they're hitting now, you know, would he, what would he be capable of if he was playing, you know, in 2020, as opposed to, you know, 1997, 1998. I'm curious about how you decided to structure the documentary because I, I kept wondering, you know, when is he going to get into the steroid stuff? It's sort of looming there as you watch the rest. And you mentioned the Andro affair about 47 minutes in. And then I think it's not until the hour 30 mark that you have Bob Costa saying, but there was a price to pay. And then the rest is steroid stuff. So it sort of mirrored the way that we experienced the story in the moment where it was fun and innocent. And then only later did we learn about these other aspects. But you could have laid out the whole arc of 
of the story from the start and foreshadowed this and said, this is great, but then later it kind of changed, but you chose not to do that. And I wonder why. I mean, in a way, I felt it was sort of rewarding. If we had started off with like, you know, hey, this is a controversial story, steroids, you know, I mean, that's, that, is, that is the frame that we're in right now. Like mm-hmm. everyone looks back at 98 feeling conflicted because they know what was happening during the steroid era. So it was a real goal for me to try to put the viewer back into a place where they were experiencing it as if it's in real time and and what the emotion felt like. And I really did look at the Andro section as, okay, these are, here's the the first real uh, signs that we're seeing something that is different, you know, that, that we did, we don't know all of, of the information about of what's going on on the field. But yeah, to me, it felt, I, I also didn't want to make it seem like we knew more than the people who are living it. You know, it's like, it's a kind of, it's a level of, of, of judgment uh, as a filmmaker. If I'm saying like, Hey, you're all smarter than these people who are in the moment, you know, it, to recreate how big it was and how it became a sort of national conversation. It was important to me to kind of strip away the haze as much as I could, and then, you know, be able to unpack it. And maybe then you can unpack it in a way that looks at it uh, slightly differently than your priors coming into it. Well, you also don't, there's so much about that era that we actually still don't know. And so in, in some sense, it would be hard to get really deep into like the, here's what was actually going on sort of darker underbelly side when what we really know is pretty vague, you know, vague strokes about like, well, there was a a lot of cheating going on. We know Mark McGuire's kind of apologized for things, but like, we don't know like what day he was going into what closet or whatever and doing what. And so it's hard to make it a lot more specific than a, a broad sort of like, well, as as you do at the end, like to 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 say, well, okay, so we've we've seen what what we what we just watched, and and there's a lot we don't know about it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think that's true. Yeah. The questions that we have about that era are still a lot of them are still there. Um, you know, I, again, I think the biggest one being is that we don't know just who was and who wasn't, and we probably never will. You know, I think there's something that Steve Traxel said in his interview that we didn't get to use, where he said, you know, I've come to just the acceptance that I can only know about myself. You know, I'm the only, you know, I know that I didn't use, and that's all I can say. I don't know about anyone else in the game. So that's the, the looming challenge in terms of wanting to judge the accomplishments of, of that entire era. Various people in the film, including Kerry Wood, expressed the idea that the 98 home run race saved baseball after the strike, and that's not a new idea. Many people have said that, and it makes a good story, of course, but if you look at the attendance figures both before and after 98, I don't think it stands up to scrutiny, really. I I guess you could disagree, and I wonder whether you subscribe to that idea that it really did save baseball, or if baseball was on its way back already, and, and whether you considered kind of pushing back on that a bit. To me, what, what it did was, I think in that moment, and maybe it was the moment of, uh, you know, in Bush Stadium, Mark and Sammy embracing after Mark hit 62. I think for a lot of people uh, in the country, both baseball fans and people who didn't follow the game closely, 
it was a moment that made them feel like baseball was representing the best of America. That what they thought, like, this is what America could be to have these two guys doing this thing, embracing one another, embracing the history of the game. I think it, it, it helped to change people's perceptions about how they felt about baseball after they may have felt more bitterly after the strike. So I don't just look at it in terms of the attendance numbers or even the viewership numbers, um, some, you know, which you can look at different statistics and it goes different ways. It, to me, it's more about a sort of a, a less tangible numerically a feeling that people had around this sport that they hadn't had since the strike and, you know, but which has lingered, had lingered for, for a while, I think, in terms of people's perception of, of baseball. The year after they hit 70 and 66 home runs, they both topped 60 again. And then uh, a couple years later, uh, when, when Bonds hit 73, uh, Sosa hit 64, I think, again. And so much of what this documentary covers, I, have, I had forgotten about. I was just a, you know, just a college kid at the time kind of watching it. But a lot of it was really new to me. And so I actually cannot remember whether there was a home run chase in 1999, whether we all freaked out because they were both chasing 70 again. And you spent a lot of time in that era. What was it like in 1999? Was it still a big deal or did we move on and did it get just too familiar? No, I mean, I think if you look at attendance figures or viewership when Cardinals and Cubs were coming to town, you were still seeing these crowds and still seeing these people who were showing up, you know, hours in advance for for batting practice. I, I mean, I certainly remember going to Dodger Stadium in 99, even went down to uh, see the Padres play the Cardinals and people were, you know, showing up en masse to attend batting practice to see McGuire hit. So I think there was still a level of enthusiasm. I don't know if people felt that, you know, hey, they're going to do it again. I think it was more just like, oh, you know, maybe we're going to see some more home runs um, from these guys that we've fallen in love with. And I want to ask one other question about uh, what the coverage was like or what the, the public sentiment was like, because you spent so much time in that space. Like, I, I have a sort of a, a vague memory, and I mean, the documentary captures this, that uh, Sammy Sosa was in, in a lot of ways treated as like a secondary character in this drama, uh, a, a very crucial one. But because he wasn't as famous before the season began, because he was trailing most of the time, because he kind of came out late because, you know, probably because Mark McGuire was American and the home run title has often been sort of a, I don't know how to put it, but a little bit of a fraught identity record. I guess the question that I have is, were people rooting against Sammy Sosa? I don't really remember which way that it went. Was there a sense that like Mark McGuire was the, the public choice? I think it depends on who you talk to. I think a lot of people around the Cardinals felt that, that people were rooting for Sosa because he was the underdog and he was having so much fun. <laughs> Whereas for most of the season, you know, Mark was, you know, did not want people's attention on whether or not he had hit a home run. You know, Sammy was like, yep, you want to interview me? Bring the cameras, like, let's go. And so I think it depending on who you talk to, it may change as to who people felt was, you know, the favorite. I think, you know, certainly from a perspective of a game that, you know, had seen Hank Aaron treated extraordinarily poorly when he was challenging the all-time home run record, there were a lot of people who were patting themselves on the back just to 
see that, that there wasn't that kind of vitriol uh, aimed toward Sammy and that this felt like a feel good moment in race relations. Um, you know, the, uh, there's a somewhat infamous cartoon of there's, and there's a wall in front of them that they broken down and it said racism. And, um, you know, that, that was, <laughs> that's uh, a, bit, a bit naive. I think we can all agree, um, especially in our current world situation, but certainly in that moment, you know, I, I think people, you know, they, they were seen as being these both likable and, uh, admirable characters. And, uh, I don't think that, um, aside from, you know, your individual fandom of a certain team, I don't think there would have been disappointment about either one of them ultimately ending the season with the record. I think if, if Sosa would have done that after Maguire, you know, hit 62, it certainly would have been, you know, a very interesting twist on the storyline. You interviewed Todd McFarlane, who paid roughly $3 million for Maguire's 70th home run ball and also paid a much smaller amount for Sosa's 66th. And McFarlane also later bought Barry Bonds's 73rd home run ball, although that only cost him half a million, which makes me think that maybe the 70th home run ball didn't really appreciate. So I wonder whether you asked him whether he regrets spending that much on those balls, whether they're still special to him and whether they're still worth a fraction of what he paid for them. Well, he said that there were a couple of reasons why he did it. One of the reasons was that he, you know, had really wanted to get into doing action figurines of sports players. And he had had a hard time having anyone in the league sort of take him seriously as a, uh, somebody who would, who would do that. He thought if I do this, it will show that I'm serious about sports. And I'll be able to like try to get that to happen. And his guess was right. I mean, he did end up then getting those contracts. And I'm I'm sure that he has. Uh, in fact, I know that he has made that money back <laughs> in terms of being able to do those sports figures. He said the secondary reason why he did it uh, was because his uh, brothers were both huge baseball fans. And uh, to quote him, he he wanted to be able to say to them. I've got the baseball, I've got the baseball. <laughs> so for those two reasons, despite the fact that I think cumulatively uh, he paid over like $5 million for the, the baseball collection from 98, he still feels good about it. Uh, one last question about the music, which is by Jeff Tweedy and which is really beautiful yeah. and astounding. I was going to ask about that too. It's almost distracting because I like it so much. I'm oh, like, wait, wait, pause the documentaries. <laughs> I want to hear the rest of the song. Yeah, it's so good. And I mean, so much of this documentary is just, it, you're just watching these beautiful things and listening to these beautiful things. And uh, so that's it, like, it's really pleasant. And I wanted to know with, uh, because we've had some conversations about what constitutes a baseball song. Did you tell Jeff, make it baseball-y? And <laughs> did he, like, do you feel like it is baseball-y? And what, what about it says this is baseball documentary music? Uh, well, you know, Jeff grew, I grew up just outside St. Louis, a uh, small town, Edwardsville, Illinois. Um, Jeff grew up in Belleville, which is like about two to three towns south of where I grew up. And he's a little bit older than me. I knew he was a baseball fan. And of course now, you know, he lives in Chicago. So when I started talking with ESPN, I was like, you know, I would really love to get Jeff Tweedy to do the soundtrack. Did not know whether that was possible. I don't know. Did not know Jeff personally at the time. So we reached out, you know, I had a conversation about it and, you know, I, I said, you know, what I'm just interested in is that, you know, 
kind of where I'm coming from in terms of being a baseball fan who grew up in St. Louis during the era that I did. And I talked about Jack Buck and Mike Shannon on the radio and, you know, driving around with my dad in a station wagon, you know, through the cornfields, listening to the games. So I, I just kind of talked to him sort of thematically about the background of how I was looking at structuring the film. And on my birthday last year, I woke up and opened my email and there were 20 tracks from him. <laughs> and so he just sent me all this music. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm so excited about the film is the way I was able to cut to his music from like uh, Home Runs 55 uh, through the 62 sequence. Um, I used a lot of uh, his bass stems and then uh, went to Chicago in early March before the pandemic hit. And, you know, he added some flourishes uh, to kind of go with the picture. But the the idea of having, you know, these voices who had witnessed it, you know, people who had touched the events in Bush Stadium in September of 98 and combine that with some of this film footage, uh, you know, MLB had sent out uh, film camera persons, uh, 16 and 35, and, and some of that has been seen, but most of it hasn't. And then just score and just kind of put all those together and try to make these emotions that were felt at the time, you know, when Mark goes and hugs the Maris family, when he lifts his son up into the air, you know, the generational aspect of baseball that seemed to be so dominant in that moment you know, Jeff's music was just a joy to get to edit with because it really felt like you could underline things in a way that, uh, you know, you, you maybe wouldn't be able to. And, you know, when I first hit, heard it, I, I didn't think like, oh, this is, this sounds like Americana baseball music, but I, I think that it, it's, per, it's perfect. There's a sort of, you know, atonality to some of it that just on its own doesn't seem like it would work but it totally does can we download or stream that somewhere or can you just forward me <laughs> the email from jeff tweedy so i personally can <laughs> yeah we should talk to jeff about that i mean that's i'm just yeah i'm thrilled that people get here because i think you know the it's some of the best score music for a documentary that i've ever heard so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm excited for people to hear it on sunday All right. Well, congrats again, and thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. I appreciate it as well. All right. So we will take a quick break now, and then Sam and I will be back for some additional discussion. All right, so we just wanted to do a little post-interview discussion, just me and you now, about what we thought about the movie or what we thought about when we were watching the movie. And I was very much in the target market for this movie, I think, just because of how old I was when all of this happened. So this was summer of 98. I guess I was 11 years old. And people say that age 12 or whatever is when you tend to care most about baseball. And I don't know if that's true for me or for everyone, but I certainly did care deeply about baseball at that time. And my own fandom was kind of at a height because I was a Yankees fan and I was watching one of the best teams ever. And meanwhile, this home run chase was playing out. And I remember tuning into it 
whenever I could and wherever I was. And I took some trips that summer, I recall. And it was constantly like, how do I find out what McGuire and Sosa did today? Because you couldn't do that on your phone. It wasn't just omnipresent the way it would be today. So it was like, got to get in front of a TV, got to get to Sports Center, got to watch this game if it's being broadcast. And it really took me back to that time, especially like when the graphics on the screen in the documentary would show the leaderboard. That just brought back really visceral memories for me because that was what you saw all of that summer. It was those three guys or then those two guys just jockeying for position at the top. Yeah, the feeling that, I mean, I, I agree. Like you, we mentioned this in the interview, but the decision really for the documentary was, is this going to be a documentary about reliving that summer or is it going to be a documentary about reframing that summer? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't. If I were starting the project, my natural temperament is would would probably make me think, ah, this is a reframe it type of yeah. story. And he chose the relive it one, and it's just a choice. There's not a right way. It just depends on what you which story you want to tell, how you want to tell it. Uh, but I definitely was caught up in reliving it. Like I, yeah. I did not know that I needed to relive it. I that summer, like I thought that I remembered it, mm-hmm. but really like to to get caught up in it again, to see the swings, to feel like the, the pressure building. Uh, it was really, I, I thought, effectively done. I mean, that the, the sense of time and place was really captured very well. And at the end of it, though, at the end of this experience, I think mirrors the end of the, the experience of, of actual 1998, which is that you're really... When when you're in the middle of a record chase or even thinking about a hypothetical record chase, it, it seems just so hard to break the record. I mean, it's it's never mm-hmm. been done, right? 62 has never been done. Yeah. And it seems like it's going to be this momentous, impossible, incredible thing. And when you describe the idea of somebody hitting 62 home runs, it just sounds titanic and gargantuan. And the kind of the conclusion at the end of 1998 was, as I think a lot of records are, where you actually see it happen and you go... Oh yeah, that just that that just was a thing. Like it, it wasn't impossible. It was very possible. They mm-hmm. didn't just hit 62. They hit 70. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't just one of them. It was two of them. And then yeah. they didn't just do it once. They both did it the next <laughs> year. And yeah. there was something about like living with the anticipation of seeing 62 that gets stripped away immediately upon 62 actually being hit and trounced yeah. and demolished and recapturing the anticipation and the feeling that we had in August that this was a thing that mattered as opposed to the feeling we had in the years to follow where it looked smaller and smaller with every passing year mm-hmm. was like a an amazing moment to capture and you could really get you made that transition in a way in the middle of the documentary anew, you sort of felt like when he makes the decision, okay, now we're going to talk about the steroids. Now we're going to show Bonds hitting number 71. You feel that same sort of like almost loss of of uh, of, of tension. 
Yeah, that was another thing that I re-experienced while I was watching this was that feeling of just being staggered as the numbers kept climbing because really the whole summer your mind was fixed on the milestones like 60, 61, 62. And even though it was pretty apparent that they were going to break that at a certain point or that they would even blow by it because there was a lot of season left and they were right there, still like once he got to 62, that sort of felt like, okay, that's it. Maybe because Maris, when he broke Ruth's record, it was just by one. He just barely got by and it took a longer season. And then this time they just, they got to 62 and they just kept going and going. And the numbers as they kept climbing up into the upper 60s and then 70s, it was like mind boggling even to see that again, because I've just been thinking about it as, yeah, McGuire hit 70, Bonds hit 73, no big deal. I've sort of gotten used to that idea, but to see it happen in the moment where 62 was so amazing and then they didn't stop there. They kept going and going and these numbers kept climbing into this just unimaginable level. But then, as you said, they did it again. So it wasn't a one-time thing, but that was really remarkable at the moment. So just so different from Roger Maris, where, like you say, he did it by uh, one home run, by the skin of his teeth, in a controversial way, right. even. Like, it was so close that some people wouldn't count it, even. Mm-hmm. And and he never came close again. I mean, Roger Maris made it look hard. And the experience of watching Sosa and McGuire from 98 to 2001 was they made it look really, really easy. And in a sense, that shows just how great they were and how for those four or five years, they were both just, they had, had just mastered the art of, of hitting home runs. But in a sense, it also just sort of captures that this was a story about an era as much as anything else. And that, I don't know, that it just felt like like they had, like it just, it, it didn't feel, it, it, it was stressful. It looked stressful. Mm-hmm. It didn't look hard though. <laughs> no. Like there were a lot of bad swings that that you'd watch like a bad swing and then like oh well that's number 48 right <laughs> yeah and, and that's something i don't know if it's really a critique of the documentary but it's something that i guess i wish had been mentioned in some way is that clearly this was a product of the offensive environment i think there's a, a good probability that the ball caused a lot of that so this was something that in my interview with aj i talked about and i think i had written something about it for the ringer and I, that was even why he brought me on and it didn't end up in the documentary and I'm not shocked because maybe it's kind of complicated and as he said there was limited time to get to that but if you experience this in the moment or for many people watching this now they think oh well guys were hitting a lot of homers because steroids and that's really the only explanation given for why they were hitting so many homers and if anything that kind of cheapens the accomplishment if you think that's all it was on the other hand maybe it makes it more impressive because really the reality is that this was an incredibly high scoring era it was the highest home run rate era until the current one but the fact that we're now seeing this era with strict drug testing and yet the home run rate is higher than it was then and granted the distribution is different and the leaders are not hitting as many home runs there aren't the outliers that there were 
And I'm not saying that steroids didn't play a part in those home run totals, but I would have liked a little more context to just say, hey, the home run rate really skyrocketed suddenly. And it seems like it's the ball. A lot of people think, well, maybe it's expansion, maybe it's smaller ballparks. And I've seen some studies on that that suggest it probably wasn't that. But the way that the home run rate just leaped up all of a sudden, I think is pretty consistent with the ball being part of it. And even if you look at McGuire's whole career, like when he came up in 87 and he set the rookie home run record, well, that too was a really outlier home run rate year. And then the home run rate went down again and McGuire's home run totals went down again. And it's not really a coincidence. Like when records are set, often it is when there's some underlying issue here. And maybe it wasn't necessary to get into that, but that has kind of reframed my own understanding of that era and what was responsible for these high home run totals. So I am interested in sort of raising awareness of that as a factor. Yeah. I'm looking at Mark McGuire's baseball reference page right now and seeing the number 70, of course, is like, wow, that's a lot of home runs. Yeah, it's a lot of home runs, right? Like that. <laughs> yeah. that's a line that you notice. But I'm almost more amazed at 2000 when he hit 32 home runs in 236 at bats. <laughs> to me, 32 and 236 is even weirder, yeah. more discordant, more out of a uh, out of place on a baseball reference page than 70 yeah. and 509. Hey, what do you think this documentary would have been like, or or what do you think? I guess maybe broader conversation about. Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa would be like if Barry Bonds had had never hit had hit 53 home runs in 2001. Yeah, I don't know because it doesn't really change anything about what it was like at that time. And so much of the story is that it captivated the whole country in a way that maybe we haven't seen since. And that happened regardless of the fact that Bonds came along a few years later and, and broke the record. I did think it was amusing to hear one of the calls. I guess it was the call on the 70th homer where the announcer says, they'll be shooting at that one for years and years. And I don't know, it's three years, years and years, technically, I guess. It's more than two years, but they were not shooting at that one for very long. But I don't know that it actually changes it that much because A, no one really accepts Bonds's record as legitimate. And these days, no one really accepts McGuire's record as legitimate. And I don't mean legitimate as in they don't count. They do count. The stats happen. They're in the record book. But people don't consider them to have been on the level or, or on the up and up because of what we know now. And so I don't know that it actually matters that much because even if McGuire were still the record holder, I'm not sure people would really give him the respect that a typical clean or perceived to be clean record holder gets. Yeah, I don't know either. Yeah, I don't know either. I I guess hypothetically, I feel like like one of the lessons that uh, of of seeing how players are singled out for their their PED usage when they get too good that if it, you can be really good because of PEDs but you can't be too good because once mm-hmm. you get too good then then people don't forgive you for it is that you kind of you sort of don't want to have too high a profile i think i, I don't know totally spitballing uh, you know i don't know if this is true at all but you could Im- maybe imagine that the sport was more willing to forgive mark mcguire because he didn't have the home run record, then maybe they would if he still had the home run record. Yeah, I, I do think part of it part of it is that they did too well <laughs> and they brought this upon themselves because people are upset about the fact that you can't compare the stats across eras because steroids skew things. But I think part of it is also how they have handled 
the post-revelations comments and their lack of contrition or their kind of qualified contrition. So you had McGuire, of course, clamming up at the congressional hearing several years later with his much derided line, I'm not here to talk about the past, which was sort of exactly what he was supposed to be there for. And even now, how he always says that it was an injury recovery thing, which, first of all, even if it was an injury recovery thing, that's still essentially a performance enhancer. I mean, if you think that you would have been hurt otherwise, then you wouldn't have even been on the field or it would have been impacting your performance in some way. So even if you're just telling yourself, well, I've always been great at hitting homers, which is true in McGuire's case, and this didn't make me better at hitting homers, it just enabled me to stay on the field, that's still pretty significant. That's not nothing. And I think most people don't really believe that that was the sole effect either. So if they had come out at some point, as some other players from that era have done, and really just threw themselves on the mercy of the court of public opinion and said, yes, I did this, and here's why, and I'm sorry, I think things might be a little different. Like, McGuire just doesn't totally seem fully ready to reckon with it, and it seems like to the extent that he has, it was probably because he wanted to work in baseball again, and that was kind of the cost that he had to apologize if he was going to be embraced again, and Sosa has not apologized and has not really been embraced by the Cubs, which is sort of a shame regardless of what he did or didn't do. I I think people would probably still be pretty pleased to see him just the way that Giants fans are always pleased to see Barry Bonds. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a shame. It's always a shame when our judgment, when the collective judgment is applied inconsistently. And this is because, I mean, partly because this all happened in an era where, you know, like guilt has always been a little squishy because we don't really know who did it, Mm -hmm. why, and as part of what kind of social norms in in the game... But also because we have, instead of having, because there is no like retroactive punishment, we have, uh, we, I I mean, collectively, the sport Mm -hmm. has decided that this is going to be handled by how large groups of people collectively treat athletes in retrospect. And it's just, it's, it's inconsistent. It, It like, it has always been inconsistent and I mean, I think that that's a shame in, in all sorts of ways. I think that it would be nice if we had a way to close the books on this era that didn't involve some players feeling really targeted and mm-hmm. some players, you know, not like like it just it's uh, it's one line on their Wikipedia page and nothing more. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is bizarre that you that you can have a player who is one of the most significant players in the last 50 years of a franchise who's, you know, basically kept out of the franchise mm-hmm. in Sosa, whereas you have other players who are employed by major league teams right now and right. just doing fine, like Mark McGuire. This is not a, a big issue, but I will just, uh, since you mentioned it, I'll say that the, uh, that the not, it's, it's not a convincing <laughs> when when Mark McGuire says that he just needed it to stay on the field and that it was just about recovery, I don't really believe that that's the only effect of, mm-hmm. of PEDs. But if it were true, if if you believe the the facts of that, I actually think that it would be a, a tr- very different thing. Like I, we we accept all sorts of 
of controlled substances being used for therapeutic reasons. And I don't think people are like upset. I don't think people would be upset if these these chemicals were used to keep players on the field, just like they're not upset that cortisone is used to keep players on the field. It's yeah. specifically the performance enhancing aspect of it. It's the idea that the home run was not real. Not uh, People want to see baseball players or people want to see great performers in any field given the chance to perform their their skill uh it's really the feeling that that home run that i saw wasn't real and mcguire and and others have always been caught in between where they just they there isn't a way that they're comfortable admitting that fact and if they're not comfortable admitting that fact that it did cause them to hit more home runs then there's something that feels like like you lose the apology right away like from the very first words of your apology, there is something that the listener is just doesn't find that to be authentic, convincing, based on his own premise. And mm-hmm. so it's it's kind of really a little bit sad to see just 20 years later, McGuire still sort of fumbling to try to figure out a way to yeah. communicate with the public of of what he did, why he did it, and what it meant to him as a performer. And I don't know, I guess that maybe at the core of, of, of both his experience and Sosa's experience is just that amazingly, 22 years later, there still isn't any really sort of openness that we can all collectively have. There's a, it's a lot of fragmentary conversations about an era that we still don't understand all that well. And it would it would be nice, at, at least for, for me as a baseball fan, if if we we all were a little bit like... I don't know if we all felt a little safer uh, having a conversation about, you know, what what it all meant. But mm-hmm. it's just the, when you're when you're a an elite athlete and you're uh, playing for your legacy and you can't trust necessarily a good faith interpretation of of your actions, you're just you're still cautious twenty years later. Um, yeah. And I still feel like I'm, so much of the documentary is capturing the stress, the pressure that both of those players felt, although it really feels like m- maybe the pressure was on both of them. But Mark McGuire is the one who really yeah. had trouble with it. S- right. Sammy Sosa, Sosa seems, seems to have thrived. He, he, he did. He, it. Yeah. it really seems to have been like uh, uh, it's to, to suit it, his his personality. And uh, he saw it as a gift. It was it was really it's sort of a lot more joyful to watch Sammy Sosa because oh, yeah. the, the summer he embraced the summer as a blessing and Mark McGuire pushed the summer away in a lot of ways. Yeah. There's even a a point where McGuire says something like there were no rules, there were no regulations, which is not actually true. If if he was talking about Andrew specifically, okay, but there were rules, there were regulations, like the things that he was taking, he was taking steroids, he said for like a 10 year period. And that was banned by baseball. And it was illegal in the country at the time. And I know that wasn't really enforced. And there was a culture of permissiveness and looking the other way. But it's not actually true that he was not breaking rules or regulations. So that just seems like part of his rationalizing of this, which like clearly the accomplishment seems to mean a lot to him. And I can see why he wouldn't want to diminish it by saying, yeah, I was juicing and that's why I hit these homers. And I also understand why if you're Mark McGuire, you probably think that you could just hit dingers at will because he always did, right? There was this story about how many homers he hit in Little League and then he comes up as a rookie with the A's and he's mashing dingers left and right. So like clearly he was a home run hitter and he was a great slugger and that would have been true 
through even if he hadn't taken what he took. So it's probably pretty easy if you're Mark McGuire to tell yourself that even if we don't really buy it watching from afar. Yeah, well, and I mean, look, nobody wants to hear nobody wants to hear the player who cheated to win say, "Ah, but I mean, it didn't really help." I mean, it yeah. it whether I I, I it's whether like the it's thing, which, yeah, whether yeah. it's true or not, and whether even you care that much. I mean, I don't. I, I I'm a as a non baseball player, I am not personally that. I don't know. I I, I accept that that there's a, a certain amount of cheating in the game that that the players themselves, you know, are are negotiating amongst themselves. And so I try not to to be too judgmental about it. It's it's part of their game. And I'm an observer and I am a grateful consumer of the game. Uh, but, you know, it's their game. Right. And so I try mm-hmm. not to get too upset about it or to like, you know, get too judgmental about it. But even for me, like it's uh, like I, I like truth. You know, I like a certain amount of like authenticity. I like it when a person looks me in the eye and tells me the truth. And there is a feeling that when someone says that, uh, you know, yeah, I used I, I secretly used steroids to win a home run record, but it didn't help me that it's not the record that I'm protective of. It's just like my own dignity. Like, I don't really believe that when, mm-hmm. when you say it to me. And, and that's more my response than anything else. I think. You know, I don't stay up nights thinking about how Mark McGuire misled me. I uh, I understand that there is a lot of, you know, self-interested reasoning going on. And Mark McGuire mm-hmm. quite possibly believes it. Um, and Mark McGuire might actually be 100% true. It is conceivable that he didn't get any home runs. But, you know, I don't like I, I just am not persuaded by it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but public figure, tell, you know, looking in a camera and telling me something that doesn't really pass the smell test. It's just something that I broadly react negatively to me in my life and so i think that's one of the reasons that it's been hard to to really embrace the player you know mcguire's own spin on on what happened that summer yeah and even though i knew the broad strokes of the story and i obviously knew the totals and where they ended up i had forgotten some of the specifics and the details as you said you remembered some things that you had forgotten like i forgot that sosa took the lead in this race with 66 on september 25th i I forgot that it was in doubt that late i forgot or never knew that mcguire wanted to take the last day of the season off because he was so exhausted and then he hit two more homers that day so he could easily have ended up with 68 and then he hit 70 in his last at bat didn't really know that wasn't aware of that and this made me kind of dive back into baseball reference and look up some stuff like I was I'm almost surprised that Sosa won the MVP award I mean it's it's purely because the Cubs made the playoffs and the Cardinals didn't I assume because McGuire had a better season I mean he had a higher war and he was way better offensively that was like an all-time great offensive season for Maguire, whereas Sosa's season was great, but it was very much the homers, whereas Maguire... Oh, the ribbies. Yeah, the yeah. ribbies. Yeah, that too, I guess. You know, I don't know whether that would be the case now. And and looking back at, like, the war leaders from that season and seeing that Barry Bonds had a higher war than either of them, you know, before he was doing whatever he was doing, as far as we know, that was sort of striking too. Because, like, Bonds is not in the documentary, I think. It's, well, there's one quick clip where he's going back to the fence on a Sosa homer, I think, and there just isn't a whole lot of him otherwise. And so you can kind of understand... Like, 
like even now when we're retelling the story of that summer, he's not really a part of it, even though he had a better season in in a lot of ways and value-wise than both of those guys did. And so you can see why he may have felt overlooked or, or aggrieved about that, which uh, perhaps explains why he did what he did. But he yeah. was so good. And, and that was the summer when he was walked with the bases loaded too, intentionally also. So that was like his reputation at that time, even though he was not really in the spotlight. Yeah, Tim Kuhn wrote about the home run chase and about this documentary for ESPN. And he actually noted another appearance of Bonds, which uh, I'll, I'll read. Tim writes, the most memorable moment in Long Gone Summer is so subtle it can't be accidental. It's when I think there's a, maybe a montage of McGuire home runs. And in the middle of one of the McGuire home runs, it cuts to, well, just, but as he's rounding the bases on this particular home run against this particular team, we get a glimpse of this particular brand of salvation created by the summer of 98. The camera shows Barry Bonds standing in the outfield. It lasts barely a second. This is the thin, fast, mustachioed Barry Bonds the guy who was the most complete player in baseball for the entire decade of the 90s, and he's standing out there with his arms folded. The look on his face is both disgusted and satisfied. He's the detective who just bore through the lies to solve a gruesome crime. And you can <laughs> sort of see in that shot the foreshadowing of Bonds, at least according to the public telling of it, the, the lore that he reacted to this home run chase by just saying, you know, if that's how we're going to do it, I'm going to be the best at that game too. Yeah. The most extraordinary aspect of the summer as the documentary tells it i think is that sammy sosa was he was trailing most of the time and he was so non-competitive with mark mcguire about that fact it really is just a he had a a, a generousness to the race that i don't think we normally expect from our athletes we almost expect our athletes to be sociopathically competitive self-interested non-generous and sosa is really truly very generous and so much of what i remember about that race was that the two of them were doing it together that uh they were they seemed to be supporting each other and watching the documentary, you see that the energy for that narrative is mostly coming from Sosa. Sosa mm -hmm. is the one who's really is giving the gregarious answers when they're being interviewed together, who jogs in to the consternation of his teammates to congratulate Mark McGuire. And, you know, there's that moment when he catches McGuire in the final week of the season and McGuire like sort of snaps alert and is like, wait, he caught me. I can't lose this. And he he has a he does not have a sense of, of of perspective that like we're collectively doing we're together doing something historically. Mark McGuire is trying to get the all time home run record. That's what mm -hmm. he's there for. And Sosa is pushing him because you know McGuire doesn't want to lose to Sosa. I assume Sosa also didn't want to lose to McGuire. And I mean he also says like you know he wanted the record. He was trying yeah. to, to to be the man. But he alone seems to have recognized that what they were doing collectively was a shared thing that was bigger than it would be if just one of them were doing it. And that was going to lift both of them together. It wasn't zero sum. It wasn't only one person is going to 
be only one person is going to win the race, but it's not that there's only going to be one winner. Yeah. And I think that's a part of the reason that he didn't feel, I guess maybe didn't exhibit the same sense of, of, you know, being weighed down by the pressure because he and Maguire in, in the story that, that he was living, he and Maguire were having fun together and bopping a lot of dingers. And in the story that Maguire was telling, it was like he had to do this thing and he was all alone and he, you know, he needed to be the champ and he was beset yeah. by pressure. Yeah. And I wonder if that has to do with the trajectory that they took and how they got there because McGuire was the first round draft pick and he was the all time rookie home run leader. And then in 96, he led the majors in home runs. And then 97, he had 58. And so there was a lot of pressure coming into it. And he was such a huge star and he'd been an all star over and over. And Sosa, to that point in his career, had been an all star once. He'd never hit more than 40 home runs. And so no one was really expecting him him to do this and mcguire even says in the documentary that he, he just like basically didn't know who sammy sosa was before like july of that summer which you know i think that sosa maybe doesn't get enough credit for his improvements as a player because people look at his home run totals and they say okay 20 something 30 something you know 40 once and then all of a sudden 66 63 64 and people just look at him as a steroid mirage and i think he did really make some changes and and make himself better and Matt Trueblood wrote an article about that for BP recently where he looked at kind of you know how Sosa became a, a more well-rounded hitter and improved his plate discipline and started going the other way and that sort of thing so I think he did really make improvements genuine improvements but maybe because he wasn't starting from the point of everyone expecting him to make a run at this record from day one I don't want to say he looked at it as, well, whatever I do is gravy, but, you know, no one was putting pressure on him to be the one to do this. So the fact that he got so close, maybe he was just able to enjoy that, whereas McGuire was kind of anointed as the person who was supposed to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I also think the the physiques, <laughs> that was something like, uh, particularly McGuire's. Oh, my goodness, yeah. It's unbelievable. It really I mean, is, yeah. I, it's I, like, I, <laughs> when I was a kid, there was a an urban legend when I was a kid that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger had to use a two-foot fork because he couldn't bring his... <laughs> He couldn't bring his elbow in enough to get a normal <laughs> fork to his mouth. And I'm assuming that that story is not true. Yeah. Uh, and, and eight-year-olds have weird ideas about how the world works. But yeah, when McGuire would jog around the bases, it was like watching <laughs> Legos move. Yeah, it's it's he's just like stuffed into that uniform. And there are like the thing is like I think because of Maguire, maybe we expect that, oh well that's what steroids do. And and so if you take steroids, you're going to look like a bodybuilder. And most baseball players, even the ones we know have taken steroids, do not look like that. So I don't know if that's just accentuating what was already his physique or the way he worked out or what he was taking or what, but it's really striking and I think that's maybe part Part of why he is perceived as the face of this or why it's harder to get past it with him because he just looks so cartoonishly huge and the giant Popeye forearms and the broad back and the just like the tight pants with his just like massive lower body it's just like the earth is shaking as he moves around 
And the funny thing is that he still looks pretty huge. Like Bond these days has slimmed down, right? And he's like, you know, he does a ton of cardio and he's a serious bike rider and he's much slimmer than he was back then. Whereas Maguire in the interviews here, he still looks pretty gigantic. Like his arms are still huge. So I don't know if that's just uh, the way he is built or he's still working out pretty hard or what, but I do think that is part of the perception of it. Just the way he looked in a uniform was different from really anyone else. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I am glad this exists. I enjoyed it. I didn't really expect to enjoy it, or at least I, I wasn't wanting this. I wasn't thinking, you know what, we need a documentary about the 98 home run race. In fact, I remember in 2018, one of our editors at The Ringer kind of sounded us out about doing an oral history of the 98 home run race, which I don't know, maybe other people ended up doing. And there just was not a lot of enthusiasm. And I personally wasn't that interested in doing it, partly because I felt like, well, McGuire and Sosa aren't going to talk to me for this and that probably would have been true but also just because I don't really want to dwell on the steroid stuff even more than we have dwelled on the steroid stuff and it does color your perception of the whole thing so you can't just celebrate it wholeheartedly anymore you have to talk about the steroid stuff and that topic tends to be sort of tiresome for me so I I wouldn't have wanted to make this documentary, but I was sort of surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Even just seeing the footage, feeling the atmosphere again, like, you know, seeing Stuart Scott do Sports Center and talk mm -hmm. about this, or mm -hmm. even just like, you know, I don't want to make it sound like AJ's job was easy, but really, if you had just shown me a montage of every McGuire and Sosa home run from that year, I've, I would have enjoyed that a lot too. Just like seeing these gigantic blasts and their swings and everything. I just would have enjoyed that footage. So I did enjoy the trip back. And I think even though I object to the idea that this saved baseball and, you know, you the attendance recoveries were much bigger in 96 and 97. And in 98, there wasn't that big a boost in 99. It was basically flat. And then after that, attendance actually dropped. So I don't really buy that narrative. But even so... I think in that time, it really was all-consuming, and I think the documentary did a good job of showing that. Like, whether it was, you know, ESPN breaking in to show live batting practice, which is just inconceivable now, or it's, you know, the clip of Bob Lee comparing it to the Miracle on Ice, or even that footage of the kids in a classroom and the teacher saying, hey, how many people are going to watch the McGuire game tonight or McGuire Sosa when he was going for 62? And every single hand went up and it's pretty hard to imagine anything in baseball provoking that reaction today so even if the lasting impact wasn't as great as some people make it out to be in the moment it really was the dominant sports story and so much fun to follow and I don't know that baseball has had a story like that again and I don't know that it could in this sort of regional era where it's not often national news I believe you would have done that oral history if Jeff Tweedy had agreed to score it for you. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's probably true. All right. So go check out Long Gone Summer if you missed it on the first airing. And uh, thanks again to AJ for coming on. That will do it for today. Thanks for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Adam Bechea, Zach Busser, Sal Cacciatore, 
Michael Armstrong, and Randy Sabia. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. And you can contact me and Sam and Meg via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. And we expect to be back to a regular schedule this week. So we will talk to you soon. 